Hunters, this episode of the Flushman Dustin Podcast is brought to you by our sponsors and patrons. Keeping our dogs safe while hunting, training, or traveling from one location to another is important to us. We keep a first aid kit from Gundog Outdoors in our trucks and carry one on our hunt-ready vests in the event our dogs obtain an injury while hunting. We also carry their water bottle to keep our dogs hydrated while in the field. To check out these products and other safety gear, head over to Gundog Outdoors at gundogoutdoors.com and use code RINGNEXT to save 10%. We transport our dogs to the hunting and training fields in our G3 Dakota 283 kennels. These kennels are one solid piece of military grade material with a conveniently located handle on the top of the kennel to make it easier lifting in and out of our trucks. Dakota 283 also provides other specialized gear to ensure our dogs have enough water and food for a full day's hunt and to safely store and secure our gear in our vehicles. Check out Dakota 283 at dakota283.com and use code RNR10 at checkout to save 10%. To receive a larger discount, become a patron at patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. This will also get you included in our exclusive giveaways. Thank you to everyone for helping us continue to bring you Flushem and Dustum episode. Hi, hunters. Thank you for tuning into the Flushem and Dustum podcast brought to you by Nick and Tyler, the boys from Ringnecks and Retrievers. In this podcast, we will talk about guns, dogs, gear, and our successes and failures in the field through our combined 40 years of experience. We speak with hunters just like you from across the nation about their days in the field and the many memories they built with their friends and family. We are excited to have you listen. Now let's get to Flushing and Dustin. Hey hunters, thank you for tuning into the Flushman Dustin podcast. We have a special guest, Todd from the Iowa DNR here today. Uh, he is the Iowa Upland Game Research Biologist, so we're going to get a lot of great information for you all. Todd, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself and a little bit about your position? Okay, well, you already gave my title, so I yeah. kind of cover pheasants, quail, Hungarian partridge, cottontail, jackrabbits, uh, statewide responsibility. So I do kind of our harvest surveys and our roadside surveys for monitoring populations. Um, any research projects we might do in those species uh, would be running through me. Um, so I work mostly on the grassland, agricultural land side of it. So I do work quite a bit with ag policy for the Wildlife Bureau too. So it's kind of where I uh, spend most of my time. So always been an avid upland bird hunter. So kind of when I went to school, that's where I focused on. But, uh, you know, I love to deer hunt, love to turkey hunt too. So yep. So then do you, you travel the whole state of Iowa then to see all the, the public lands and things of that nature? Oh, uh, yeah. So, you know, we have management staff statewide that take care of our, uh, our public lands and our private land staff obviously work on the private lands and things like I have. So, yep. um, you know, they they, uh, you know, if they've got questions, they come to me about management, you know, what should we do and what's the best things, habitat types, arrangements, all those kinds of things, you know, they have questions about, you know, different plant species or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and Tyler, you had a question uh, earlier talking about IHAP. Todd, you brought that up. Tyler, won't you yeah. shoot with that? So I was uh, actually looking at um, on Facebook, it was Iowa Upland Hunting, uh, and one of the individuals just pulling up my photos now because I took a screenshot. And I have question. Um, so the question is from this individual: Does the owner of the IHAP property still have control of that property on the off season? And if possible, could an individual go there to train their dog, or would they need permission from that person who owns the IHAP land? So our IHAP agreements generally run through from September through May, I think is what is in our contract. So kind of, you know, our early duck and dove seasons through the end of turkey season and then the rest of the year. Yeah, then it, they're kind of not open to the public. So uh, but as a as the landowner, you can certainly allow anybody you want on that property. It is it is their land. So, yeah, if you want to train your dogs on that. Um, You'd have to go seek the permission of the of the landowner to do it during that time frame. Yeah. So what does you, you know you talk about the contracts for the IHAP? What does that all entail as a landowner? If a landowner was looking to get into the IHAP, what steps would they take? 
So, you know, when a lot of the other states around us developed access programs, and so, you know, we kind of looked into that for a number of years, probably the department spent five to six years, kind of even invited a lot of the other states in, Texas, North Dakota, Montana, South Dakota, you know, Nebraska, the other states that had walk-in programs. Um, you know, we had uh, some input meetings with landowners here statewide, and and uh, just dialoguing with hunters, we thought the focus of ours should be more habitat oriented, um, you know, because having access without good habitat doesn't really mean much. So uh, our program is really focused on the habitat side of it. So we offer landowners incentives to help manage their habitat. And so usually we're talking about focusing on CRP. And so, you know, whether that's burning better seedings, uh, food plots, whatever they wanna do, upgrade their seedings. You know, we're providing those kinds of incentives uh, in exchange for kind of helping landowners with that work, they give us access. So that's really kind of what we do for the landowners. You know, I've got these things to do and, you know, here you guys will kind of help us do that. So it's a nice little perk for them. And then, you know, we get good habitat. So hopefully means better populations and icing on the cake is really, you know, hunters having access to that after <laughs> that. So does, is the landowner that enrolls in the IHAP, are they then responsible for the maintenance of the grass and planting the food plots? Or is that something that you guys help with such as e equipment for planting it or um, if it's time to burn off the grass and redo it? Is that something you guys help with? Um, so we basically go in with the landowner, you know, usually landowners have some objectives. So we try to incorporate those in, you know, where it's reasonable. And uh, as far as doing the work, that's not us. You know, we provide the incentives to landowners so they can hire contractors to get the work done that we've outlined in the plan and the agreement we've made with them. They can do it themselves if they want to, if they have the yep. equipment. We don't really care, you know, just as long as the work gets done and the habitat that we've kind of agreed to is there, um, you know, that's the ultimate end product. So it's fairly flexible. You know, our agreements can run from three to 10 years. So usually we're focusing on CRP, that's a 10 year contract. Um, so usually if we get them right when they're signing up, um, we probably get access for 10 years. Um, I think our private lands guy told me that um, our average contract length is seven years. So we tend to get much longer contracts. So, nice. you know, that's nice, especially for hunters, you know, it's gonna be there for a few years. And let's, so going back to the land, is there, are you constantly looking for IHAP land to come available? Or are you constantly asking farmers for this? And then on the other side of that, what's the process to you looking for just like wide open public land? Um, that you, know, you guys may own or the state may own, I guess. So, yeah, a lot of folks ask about, you know, we get license fee increases and what are we doing with the money? And so, of course, a lot of that goes to staff and the equipment and all the kinds of things that go along, just managing as much land as we have in the state, um, yep. which seems like a lot, but I think we're about dead last in the nation for the amount of public land. So, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> crazy. you know, we, we'd obviously like to see that go up, but um the department acquires around 4,000 acres a year um, oh. in new public lands. Um, you know, so that's quite a bit of land, um, 40,000 acres in the last decade. That's about 62 yeah. square miles. So, and the department's kind of always had that long-term goal. Of course, you know, the price of land's not getting cheaper. No. So, you know, you know, when we say we need license increases, if we want to keep buying at that rate, you know, we're going to have to kind of, keep going with the cost of living there to, to, to keep acquiring that amount or we can't acquire that. So, you know, that's why you see periodic license increases because we're not hearing from hunters that they want fewer places to hunt, but, you know, yeah. they want what we yeah. have plus more. Yep. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, that's kind of where the rubber hits the road. You, you got to be able to buy it. Absolutely. For it. So, um, so the IHAP is kind of nice and it's not, we're not buying it. We're just buying access yep. whatever the term of that agreement is. So, do you look um, for certain the things? The program is, you know, it stands for Iowa Habitat and Access Program. And it's actually a grant that's made available through the Federal Farm Bill, USDA. Okay. 
So we put in a request for $1.5 million a year ago and got it. And oh. so that's what our staff been working on. So we spent about a million of that um, through about last month already. So we got another half million of it to spend, but we've, I think we've enrolled around 14,000 acres uh, with that money. So about 22 square miles. Um, oh, wow. Additional that... hunting land that'll be open this fall. Nice. To hunters. We hope a lot of it, you know, we got a lot of signing to do and, and get agreements in place, but uh, yeah. So we're thinking yep. by this fall, the total program will probably be in the neighborhood of 30 or 40,000 acres. And it was uh, a year and a half ago, it was around 20,000. So, you know, one of the things that I've noticed um, with IHAP land is that I, I, I feel like there's always more birds on that land. I feel like the owners must, uh, you know, like you said, during the, the summer season or uh, whatever you require of them, it really seems to work. Because well, I, I mean, always we're, 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 you know, usually when our staff are visiting with them, we're, we're applying the same habitat management we like to see on the public lands we own. Yep. You know, so we want to see good management, whether it's burning or interseeding, you know, including food plots, doing winter cover, you know, upgrading wetlands, um, you know, if they're willing to do things like dove plots for us. And, you know, we're, we're trying to work all that in, uh, you know, obviously you got to work with yep. the landowners and their objectives, but. Yep. Yep. How would you say the pheasant population was this year in Iowa, this past year? Uh, pheasant numbers were up from a year ago, about 18%, so about two birds are out. And uh, actually our counts on the eastern third of the state, um, from the northeast down to the southeast, were some of the best we've seen in 5, 10, 15 years for a lot of those regions. So I'm actually from Guttenberg, Iowa originally, so northeast Iowa. And I went up there hunting, and we saw a load of birds up there. I was super impressed, especially with as hilly as it is, um, a lot of timber up there. Yeah, the numbers were great. Yeah, that's kind of the reports I got most of the season. So, um, you know, our hunter numbers have been up with COVID. We saw it this spring with turkey hunting. We've seen it with fishing license sales. So, um, you know, we don't have just a small game license. So I can't tell you if our pheasant, because I don't have a pheasant license. We yep. just have a basic yep. hunting license, yep. which deer hunters buy and turkey hunters buy and duck hunters. So I can't tell yep. you, know, you buy it. I don't know what you're hunting, but we think pheasant hunter numbers are up this year. And uh, with the higher populations, I'm expecting that our, our pheasant harvest could be the highest we've seen in 10 to 15 years. Maybe. Do you think, you think this winter is going to hurt that quite a bit? Oh, uh, yes, I do. Unfortunately, <laughs> I was worried you're going to say that. I was worried you're going to say that. Uh, I was hoping you weren't going to go going. there, so you didn't have to burst the bubble. But yes, <laughs> this is not not shaping up to be a good winter. Yeah. So, what do you guys, when you start doing the pheasant number, what's the process of calculating that? So the the pheasant roadside surveys was some uh, project that was initiated by Iowa State way back in the 1930s. You know they did oh, some wow. research there and and found you can get a pretty good index to the population. I mean you can't count all the pheasants out there; it's just yeah. not possible. No, but you can do a standardized survey and get a pretty good idea of the trend from year to year. And so that's basically what we've been using since then. Um, they tinkered around with it for the first 20, 30 years. You know as we got better science. And um, so it's been standardized since 1962, roughly. So we've got over half a century of data basically oh. be, being collected with the same methodology. So we've got 218 routes statewide. It's about two per county. So we drive 6,000 miles <laughs> in the state. Our staff does around the first couple of weeks of August. And uh, it's usually same staff, same weather conditions, same routes same you know direction when they do the surveys so gives me a pretty good index to what the population is matter of fact i can almost predict what our pheasant harvest is going to be when i get that number um, oh, really? so probably one of the most comprehensive surveys i know of in the midwest as far as game birds go we have more routes than any of the states around us so um that's really what i do i take a look at that and you know, I, I get regional numbers, um, you know, and then of course I can roll that up to a statewide number, but that, you know, that's kind of how we make the prediction on the populations. Um, the one thing that can influence it a little bit is it's kind of predicated on good dew. You know, the first two weeks of August, the broods are half grown. So they're still hanging with the hen, yep. but they're mature enough 
that the hen's comfortable bringing them out in the open. You know, they're half grown and so they can fly. And, and uh, <clears throat> but we kind of depend on that heavy dew because they don't like to be wet. So if you yeah. get a good heavy dew morning, they'll come to the roadside and just kind of loaf, you know, waiting for things to dry off before they start doing their feeding for the day. And so, you know, the counts weren't as good in the western side of the state this year, but we were also in a major drought. And it's hard to have dew when you don't have yeah. any soil moisture. Yep. So, yeah. Makes sense. You know, our staff did the best. You always have some dew, but, you know, it's really those super soaker dew mornings that, um, give us the good counts and that's kind of what the eastern side of the state had they had a little bit more moisture work within the yep. west and so i think that's kind of what we saw in the counts a little bit you know they, they had really good counts over in the east and that's true they weren't quite as good in the west but you know hunters tell me that in that part of the state did pretty good this fall too so yeah we had good luck out in the west yeah. of the state yeah, where we, we went it was where, where were we at again i can't remember um, what that town was little town was called so we were kind of, we're going up to sioux city it was like Ottawa, i believe um is the town name i don't know if you're familiar with that todd yep. at all yeah it's out yep. west yeah yep yep the little town there and i yep. don't believe it we're was on the that, river yep yep i don't believe it was that town but it was a little bit north of there northwest of there just a little bit um and yeah we had some we saw we went into a field that was right next to the town we were we were in and literally 10 steps in we kicked up what, what eight roosters yeah just it was boom. crazy yeah so, it, cool so what you're doing is working <laughs> yeah. well, we're doing good habitat now mother nature i got no control over so i yeah. can use things there but so do you talk with pheasants forever then to try to to know what this is or i mean just with your background you kind of you you're your own expert basically is is that kind of what you do throughout the state then or do you yeah do you i mean collaborate I with other people i guess yeah i mean i got my master's degree from south dakota state and so you know i kind of knew i wanted to work on upland birds so yeah, yeah you know a bookshelf here behind me is probably you know got i've forgotten more about <laughs> pheasants probably than most people ever know so i mean <laughs> yeah that's what i do i'm kind of a geek that way but um yeah, I mean, you know, I work with our staff, you know, Pheasants Forever's had me at Pheasant Fest and in their annual state meetings. And, you know, I work a lot with their farm bill biologists. I mean, some of their staff have been summer interns with me here at the DNR. And so, yeah, we have a really good working relationship with Pheasants Forever. And nice. you know, I'm, I'm available to them anytime that they, you know, have questions and whatnot. So when you're looking at the big picture of public lands, are you guys how do you determine what you want to burn if you burn it uh what you plant there like how, how does that process take place like all right we're not seeing this here we want to plant this or you know we're not seeing many birds here we want to do this or is that even a process or like, oh, I guess, sure sure yeah. i mean our that's what our public land managers do i mean uh you know our our management units there's 16 in the state that you know, we divide it up the state into regions and there's 16 yep. regions so each of our managers has about six counties they cover so they they're responsible for all the public land okay in that region and their management unit so and that's usually a, a management unit team is a biologist a tech two a tech one if they're lucky they got two tech ones but most only have one and then we'll hire a couple summer kids for the summer so yep. And most of them have responsibility for probably in the neighborhood of 60 to 100,000 acres. I mean, it's a lot oh. of land. And so, you know, just maintaining the boundaries on that is a task, yeah. you know, let alone parking lots and signage and, and then talk about the fun stuff, actually managing the habitat. I yeah. Mean, <laughs> so, yeah. I guess I mean, you don't, I don't even, I guess you don't even, you don't even think about that, like all the, the signage and the parking. You don't even think about that when you're going in there. You mainly just think of the field. So, yeah. That, well, that's... just think about them. I mean, that big of an area, sometimes they're a two-hour drive just to get there. Yeah. You got to take tractors and planters and and get it there. And I mean, it's – so our guys are on a, about a three- to five-year rotation, just, I mean, logistics-wise for the number of areas that we have and the staff we have. So that's kind of the rotation they stick with with trying to do burnings and stuff. Um, okay. You know, when it comes to like seedings and wetland management, um, you know, it's we acquire a property and 
you know, of course, we got to find the money to do the seeding. And, and so they just work it in schedules, you know, they, you know, we got to do dub plots every year. And, and um, as far as what goes on on the areas, it's, it's up to the guys. I mean, we don't manage, you know, we manage for pheasants and waterfowl and turkeys and deer and yeah. you know, we got fur bear hunters and, you know, yep. we're responsible for songbirds and things that aren't hunted. So, you know, our managers are trying to look at all that and you know what what makes sense for this area you know and so there's kind of all that that goes into it as well wow the plan that's incredible yeah there's, there's a lot of logistics with being a land manager just that number of acres you know to keep track of all that and to be able to touch that each year you know and to have it keep producing for hunters is that's incredible yeah, I mean, you know, so some of uh, what our staff do every spring out there is just manage crop leases because we've got a bunch of uh, uh, land that we own that we do let farmers crop. I mean, they do pay us a cash rent for it, but yep. typically with most of those, um, you know, having some cropland out there is good for wildlife. I mean, obviously yeah. we don't want too much. We don't want to get all the nesting cover or anything, you know, but we also want food plots, but we're stretched so thin that a lot of times we'll do the crop lease and maybe cut them a break on the rent and say, Hey, you leave us five acres over there. And you know, when, when you're out there harvesting and we have our food plot, you know, it's just, yeah. way, you know, that way we don't need all that special equipment. They take care of all the spraying and all the stuff that needs to happen. Um, <laughs> you know, if we're doing a seeding, a brand new seeding on an area, you know, we want to convert something, say to brome to a better native mix, you know, our guys will rent that out hey, we'll let you farm that for three years. They're going to get it all cleaned up, convert it, get it weed free. And then we go in and do the native seeding on it. You know, saved us all, all, you know, us all the expense of having to do that. And so, you know, we're pretty creative about, you know, yeah. stretching so dollars when, as far as we can. Yeah. So when you guys acquire land, like you, you were talking earlier, you know, you, you're getting X amount of acres this year. Is that what percentage of that is ready to be hunted would you say the year that you get it or does it go through that process of like three years where you have to kind of get the grounds groomed prior to being ready to hunt it um so you know a lot of the land like i said we're trying to stretch our dollars every every way we can so a lot of times we're gonna focus on like some wrp so WRP's, you know, wetland reserve program that USDA runs, and it's basically USDA goes in and buys the agricultural rights of the land, so most of it. So they probably pay 75% of appraised value. And so what the landowners left with is they can maybe do some timber harvest on it, or they can graze it or hay it maybe occasionally. Um, well, we kind of like that because we can go in and buy that, the other 25%, and get some great habitat and not and we're not paying 100 percent value usda is already yeah. bought part of it and and so that's one of the things we target um you know stretch the dollars going further so in a case like that the wrps probably improved the habitat already yeah okay. so that's good for sportsmen in the state we don't have to spend more hunting dollars you know improving yeah. it because it's already yep. there but we're going to go in and tweak it obviously yeah. if we think it needs some more stuff um Another example is we just brought a, a fairly large uh, chunk down in Madison County. I can't think of the name of it, but several, like 1,200 acres, I want to say at least. Oh, wow. And it was kind of a mix of crop, a lot of pasture and timber. And so it's got a lot of fescue on it, probably a lot of brome. We, we think there's a little bit of remnants in some of the pasture. And then, so, you know, that area, we're probably going to keep cropping the better ground that should be cropped. We're going to retire the stuff that's erosive or, you know, affects water quality or something quickly um but in that case you know we're, the staff are just going to kind of have to work it in when can we break out some of that poor habitat and you know get it worked up and try to do a seeding so you know to your original question how soon can you hunt it i mean they're going to be open hunting right away but you know it may take us several years to get the habitat where we'd like it to be and where probably hunters want to see it but it definitely varies based on the, the parcel that was purchased 
I had no idea that, like, <laughs> well, just as a hunter, you just don't think, like, all this goes into, you think, oh, they plant some yeah. seed, whatever, but, I mean, it's a lot of planning, a lot of work, you're getting people, um, you know, in their regions, within the state, taking care of thousands of acres, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, you just got to think about it, like, if you're building a house, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, houses seem pretty easy, but <laughs> go build one, there's a yeah. lot that goes into yeah. it. Yes, absolutely. So there. How long have you been with the DNR for? I've been in, uh, with the DNR since 1995. Oh, wow. So have, have you seen a lot of change towards from farmers in the state towards public ground or not per se public ground, but IHAP like wanting to enroll their acres into that or more farmers wanting to get back into producing cover for birds and wildlife or as crops still kind of just taken over? I mean, you know, our habitat trends are, are definitely downward. Um, you know, between 2005 and 18, in 2005, we had about 3.6 million acres of potential habitat in the state. By 2018, that figure was 2.6 million. So we've oh, lost geez. a million acres of habitat. Holy cow. So that's, you know, what does that mean? I mean, you get into numbers that big and people are like, okay, whatever. And I'm like, well, that's 1,500 square miles. I mean, that's a strip <laughs> of habitat five miles wide that was stretched from Davenport to Omaha. Holy sh That we've lost. So imagine that. And, you know, our hunter's like, I want pheasant numbers like we had 10 years ago. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. You do that. Yeah, <laughs> when you lose that big of habitat my goodness and i mean and so you know hunters see you know their piece is still there but you know two other pieces that maybe they never <laughs> did hunted that were in the neighborhood are gone well that's going to impact the piece you hunt because birds do move around and yep you know go to different habitats and so that that's really the elephant in the room is that that loss of habitat um <laughs> so we're wow you know, I'm happy that our bird numbers did what they did the last couple of years, but it's, it's really more the artifact of Mother Nature was kind to us. Um, and so, you know, the birds took advantage of the habitat we have, but if I want to grow the numbers in the state, we need to find some way to get a million acres of habitat back on the ground, and that's the challenge. So back to your question about cropping and stuff. Um, I don't think it's changed much in my career. I mean, landowners are out there making a living. Um, you know, I got relatives that are farmers and I get it. Um, so, you know, if you want them to do habitat, the incentives have got to be there to do it. And so CRP is obviously probably the best pheasant program we've got in the state of Iowa. Yep. And, you know, between 2018 and last year, we lost 130,000 acres because rental rates their offering aren't very competitive and so wow. you know this this election changed administrations so governor our former governor tom vilsack is going to be back in as act secretary he's been a generally a pretty strong supporter of crp and and keeping it competitive and so i'm hoping that means that if we can go the other way here uh in the not too distant future and gain some acres and and that's that's probably what our bird hunters want to hear. Is yes, it is. Hmm. So, do you know much about Huns in Iowa? We've been getting this question a lot about Hungarian partridges, and we actually shot just one this year up in Cedar Rapids area. But where are we supposed to find them in Iowa? Are we looking <laughs> for a different cover? Like, I don't know anything about Huns, but everybody's like, "Oh, Huns, where where can we find them?" So, just like throw it at us. Yeah, so they are from the, the arid steppe region of, uh, of Asia. And so think of it as kind of a, um, a rangeland, low rainfall, kind of, you know, not rank cover, you know, kind of knee high, sparse grasses. So, you know, within the United States, um, you know, that you kind of find them from Iowa up into Canada and and out toward Montana and, and, you know, comes some kind of the high mountain terrain a little bit. So, yeah. so they do always seem to hang on here. We never seem to get super high numbers. I mean, um, I think actually the climate here is a little bit wetter than they probably prefer. So they always seem to do well here when we have dry years. And so, 
you know, our counts this year were up 44%, but hey, what do you know? It was kind of a major drought, you know, two thirds of the state this year. So yep. um, as far as what they like, they're not gonna be keying in on uh, like heavy cover, like pheasants, they're not seeking out wetlands, they're not seeking out even CRP. They kind of use waterways and uh, the crop fields, uh, fence lines, maybe occasional plum thicket. Um, you know, to be honest with you, the, the guys that truly chase them wait till we get snow cover and drive around in central Iowa and just spot the covey sitting out the middle of the plowed field. And then it's a matter of going knocking on the door, see if you can get permission. And then because they can see you coming, <laughs> yeah. trying to get in range. You know, but if you flush the covey and break it up, um, you can probably get the singles better to hold than trying to sneak up on the whole covey. <laughs> yeah, they're a, they're a challenging bird to hunt. Now, if you go up into Canada or up in the Dakotas or out, you know, even Western South Dakota or whatnot, uh, you start bumping them in the grasslands. Like I've gone out there numerous times hunting uh, sharp tails or prairie chickens and you'll move a a covey of Huns. I've hunted Huns around Sturgis, South Dakota, and you're kind of getting into the foothills of the Black Hills there, and so they're farming it or trying to farm where they can, and then you got all this kind of rangeland around it, yep. occasional plum thickets, and we hit it one dry fall, and it seemed like every kind of plum thicket we went to, there was a covey of Huns busting out of it to the, to the point we had to leash the dogs because they were running to the next thicket before we could keep up with them. And <laughs> That's crazy. What kind of dogs are you hunting with? Uh, I hunt with, uh, well, I've had a Brittany, but I've been hunting mostly with Droth hares the last couple of years. Oh, yeah. German wire hares, I guess, for the American term. Yep. Yep. Those are those are cool looking dogs. I like the, I like their like beards that they have on them. Gotta love the ugly dogs, man. <laughs> <laughs> They're not ugly. Uh, uh, what about grouse? Is there any grouse in the state of Iowa that you've been finding? Yeah, we still have a population of rough grouse hanging on in, in uh, northeast Iowa, but their numbers are, are very low. I mean, um, I think we know what the issue with is. It's just we don't have an active timber harvest um, industry in Iowa like they do in Minnesota or Michigan or the yep. Wisconsin. Um, <clears throat> you know, our grouse aren't the aspen rotation that you see in those states. Ours is more of a hardwood. Um, you know, back in the day, and I'm going to take you guys back to World War II, 50s, 60s, you know, everybody was, had cattle, everybody had pastures, you think about Northeast Ivy, you know, they're, you know, and everybody's kind of burning firewood, I mean, you know, yep. we're all as economically efficient as we are today, and um, so you kind of had that, keeping the forest kind of in a younger state, you know, kind of that younger yep. forest that they like, um, but you know, kind of livestock have been consolidated. And so there's no need to try to maintain the fences on those tough pastures up there in them hills. And so, you know, a lot of them through time get abandoned, you know, and, you know, initially that's great for grouse, but once they hit a certain point, then they're too old and it's, and so I think what we've seen since the 1950s is, you know, a lot of that land went vacant and it was probably pretty good rough grouse hunting through about the 80s. But after 20, 30, 40 years of growth, the timber's getting too old and uh, doesn't provide the habitat that they need. So huh. basically our grouse numbers have been in long-term decline since the 80s. Um, you know, our staff up there are trying to do some intensive timber cuts on some of our larger public areas. And, uh, you know, I think they've documented some increased drumming, but, you know, we don't own 99% of the county, you know, the rest of the county is staying where it is. And, and so it's, you know, it's nothing that hunters can pick up on. It's very small, isolated places where we can make some improvements. So huh. that's crazy. I would never have guessed that. Yeah, I mean, you know, so folks ask, is there any hope for them? I, you know, I, I never give up on wildlife. They're pretty resilient. And if you can make the habitat at least somewhat to what they need, they seem to respond, you know, so there's lots of talk of uh, biomass and, and, you know, maybe can we use that to produce energy? And obviously forest products is one of those things that they talk about. And um, I'm like, you know, heck, if, if it ever takes off that we need to fuel our vehicles with 
you know, some kind of wood-based ethanol and people start growing stuff. They're talking about growing short rotation trees and you know, there's an opportunity. We put enough of that on the landscape that Krauss might say, this is awesome, but yeah. you know, is that so going to happen? You know, you guys tell me, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So what is it about a young, the young woods that they like? Well, they really like that, you know, that first 10 to 15 years right after an area is kind of clear cut because you get that sapling. I mean, when you think about rough grouse, I don't know if you guys have ever chased rough grouse, but if you're in good stuff, you're almost bending over and pushing your way through it. And, you know, I remember the first time I took my father-in-law rough grouse hunting, you know, we were hunting along a trail up by Mille Lacs and in northern Minnesota. And, you know, we'd gone like a quarter mile and I'd shot 15 times and I come out and he's like, what are you shooting at? I can't even see him. And I'm like, what do you mean see him? I just heard the sound shot that way. <laughs> Seeing him, you're never going to shoot one if you want to see one. So, I mean, that, you know, that that's their mechanism. I mean, that creates the habitat that they want for brood rearing, for nesting. I mean, they feed on a lot of buds and stuff on those younger trees. Okay. And when it's that thick, you know, aerial predators are big, you know, like the sharp shins and coopers, and they just can't. They can't be effective them. hunting them in that kind of habitat. But once those trees get up around three, four, five inches and it starts shading out, they can get under there. Oh, that <clears throat> makes sense. So if you're looking to go after some rough grouse, you'd want to find a younger timber in Northeast Iowa. Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, so it's more of a hardwood thing. So a recent cutover area that's it's coming back maybe in its second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, somewhere in there, you know, it just depends on the rainfalls and soils. Of course, if you got some cedars in mixed in with that, that's, you know, pretty good cover too. And yeah. So like if someone, <clears throat> I guess, logs their timber, would that be, you know, three years after that, four years after that, that would be kind of like a place to look potentially. Yep. Yeah, you want the you want the young forest probably getting up, uh, you know, overhead high, so five yeah. six feet. Um, you know, if it's not up to your waist or something, then it's not mature enough yet. But once it starts getting head high and it looks like something you'd prefer not to walk through, that's probably where the rough grouse are going to be. Nice. <laughs> so you know, up in in Minnesota, Wisconsin, UP, you know, when you hear about the classic rough grouse hunting, I mean. You know, they come in and do their, their timber harvest, and it's obviously mostly aspen. And uh, so they'll clear cut large areas. And of course, you know, when the timber companies come in there, they're creating landing sites. And of course, they have lanes, you know, they're following rough country and stuff. And yeah. So usually the department, I used to work up in northern Minnesota right when I got out of school. So I did a bunch of this stuff. And, um, you know, they make them seed down those lanes to, you know, limit erosions and they have what they call the landing sites where, you know, that's where they brought in the trees and loaded them on the trucks. And so they require that. And so that's a lot of times what the hunters are hunting up there. You hunt those edges along oh. the lane. And so you flush the grouse out. And maybe you actually get a shot when they cross <laughs> an open lane or something like that. Or, you know, you can stand on the road and maybe have them, you know. So. <laughs> We don't really have that dynamic in Iowa. Yeah. Oh no, uh, it's that's crazy. Like now, I want to go hunt some grouse. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hoot. Tyler would be frustrating, Ty but it's a hoot. Tyler wouldn't be able to hit anything anyway, so he probably wouldn't go. <laughs> I might as well not even carry a gun. I can't see the thing. I might as well. Huh. So, Ty, you... grouse hunting. If you average one bird for ten shots, you'd probably be doing well. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I never had anything. So, so, Todd, you said you went to school in South Dakota. Did you grow up in South Dakota? You from South Dakota? No, I actually grew up in uh, upstate New York by the Canadian border. Oh, wow. Upstate New York. New York yeah. boy, huh? So, yeah, I grew up hunting rough grouse. You know, I was the primary upland bird. The pheasants there were pretty much the game and fish release there. I mean, there was a few wild birds, but it was a lot of timber. It wasn't, yep. I mean, there is ag along Lake Ontario there in the St. Lawrence River, but it's it's limited. So, but yeah, that was my passion, going out the back door and chasing rough grouse, and then occasionally, you know, when the state released some hen-raised birds, you know, and usually we get there, my dad would go, I'll go chase them birds back into cover so it's more sporting. So you know, <laughs> <run down there. laughs> you know hen birds are not very bright, so. Uh, no. That's... So do you, do you get out quite a bit and hunt yourself then? 
with an Iowa every day that it can. Yeah. So Iowa, South Dakota, do you normally travel? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, mostly pheasants are hunting, uh, in Iowa. My dad lives up in South Dakota now. And so usually I'll venture up there at Thanksgiving, but, um, nice. you know, actually they've been, you know, the counts haven't been that good for South Dakota on the Eastern side of it, kind of Brookings down by Sioux yep. Falls. There's kind yep. of where my dad lives. And so he's come down here and, and, you know, had better hunting with me the last couple of years than he's had up there. And now their, their numbers took a jump up this year. So he's doing a lot better this year. But. Yep. Yes, we go to South Dakota once every year. Um, last year we were by Aberdeen, south southwest yeah, there a little you're bit. Yeah, getting out in their core range there. Yeah. Yeah, and then we were, um, you know, we've done Watertown kind of around there, and we were in winter South Dakota one year. Um, I did not like winter at all. I don't think. I mean, we didn't see shit out there. There was nothing out there. <laughs> <laughs> There was plenty of private ground birds, but nothing, nothing public that there was barely any public ground for us to even get on. It was kind of crazy, but yeah, it can be a challenge um, in South Dakota, but I mean, it's, it's like anywhere you kind of got to put your homework in to, to find the good areas and scout. So, yep. Um, on those IHAP lands, you guys have the boxes there and you want people to fill out the cards, which we always do when we're done. Um, do you normally see a, a large number of birds taken off there, whether it be pheasant or quail or, or, or whatever the case may be? Or do you actually count those up through the year or how's that, how's that all work? Yeah. I mean, that was something, uh, I think we've kind of, uh, ended that part of the, the, uh, analysis of the IHAP. So, you know, IHAP came about, I want to say two or three farm bills ago. And so there was definitely, you know, Congress wanted to know what the, return was on the dollars they were putting yeah. in that program so that's kind of why we had those boxes out okay. there we wanted to get a look at hunter numbers because when you know how many people are hunting those areas on average there's a cost to go out hunting you know you're buying fuel buying food buying shells yep you know so we kind of use those survey cards to help us generate those kind of numbers that we could share back to congress and you know i think basically in a nutshell you know this is nationwide now because we're not the only state participating you know a lot of states are buying for those dollars so but i think it was you know for every dollar congress gave for the program is generating ten dollars in economic you know benefits to the oh wow the states that were doing them so nice. yeah it's a pretty easy no-brainer i mean it definitely generates additional funding money through throughout the economy hmm. that's something we don't even even think about yeah. So tell us about a couple of your best hunting stories. What do you got for us? Throw them at us. Oh, you, you, obviously, you obviously see a lot of land, so you got to give us one on Iowa and then one from wherever. Uh, I went up to Webster County to hunt one of our pheasant safes uh, with some of the Webster County Pheasants Forever guys, and, and those guys know how to do it right. So our pheasant safe requires, you know, nesting cover and a food plot and a block of switchgrass for winter cover, uh, minimum requirements. And, you know, I, I said, you know, that's what we need when we're talking pheasant management. We want the bedroom, living room, and kitchen all right there. I don't want the birds to have to fly anywhere, walk from one to the other. So we walk into that field, uh, you know, I don't know what it was, January 7th, right here at the end of the season. And I think, you know, a hundred birds got the switchgrass and we pushed it up to the one corner and 200 birds must have blown out hundred yards in front cow. of us. And, you know, it was just like, that's it awesome. was crunchy because we got in that first snow and you know, they could hear you coming. We sounded like a tank, but uh, just cool to see that many birds. That's and awesome then, to uh, see on public ground. Funny one, I was hunting this in September. I went out to South Dakota to hunt uh, sharp tails. And uh, I think we shot our birds for the day. And so we were kind of hanging out on one of their public areas they had a wheat field. And I thought, well, we'll chase some doves, you know, for the evening, just something to do. And they were kind of landing on the round bales. They still had out in the field. So I'm like, you know, I shot a couple doves. I'm like, I'm going to set a couple on them round bales. I'll make good decoys. And, and uh, just stood, went over 20, 30 yards away and stood by the other round bale, had a dove come in, shot it. You know, I'm kind of watching the sky, and the next thing I know, this little sparrow hawk, northern harrier, comes in. <laughs> it's my dove on the bale. 
falls on the ground. He goes down and picks it up and tries to fly, but he can barely get off the ground. He's like a foot off the ground because the dove's as big as he is. That's hilarious. <laughs> I run out there yelling at him, thinking he'd drop it, and heck, he just kept flying away. <laughs> Took your meal for the night. Jeez. Yeah, I had his free dove dinner. You see if that happening to people where a hawk flies down or something, takes their dog and <laughs> takes <laughs> off with it. That's crazy. So, not to switch topics again, but Tell us a little bit about sharp tail hunting because we actually want to do some of that this year out in South Dakota. Um, you seem like you've had success with it. So what what's some of the things we need to be looking for and maybe places we need to be going? Um, I'm, you know, I, the thing out there, the biggest thing I've seen with the sharp tail hunting or prairie chickens, um, you know, so there's they have uh, a lot of federal land holdings out there. So they have national grasslands. So you guys have probably heard of the Fort Pier National Grasslands right out there by Pier. So that's about as far north as prairie chickens go. Um, they're more of a southern bird um, as far as hunting them. So, you know, if you want to hunt prairie chickens and sharp tails, Fort Pier is a good place to go. Um, Fort Pier National Grasslands. Um, we tend to go farther north up to the Grand River Grasslands, which is right up on the North Dakota border, kind of northwest South Dakota. And uh, it's just sharp tails there. So, like I said, occasionally we get lucky and we'll bump into some huns. Um, don't see a ton of them, but um, you know, that's where we go. And so the big thing with the prairie grouse is uh, you're getting a drier climate out there. If they're going to have a good hatch, they kind of need to have a wetter year rather than a drier year. Because if they're on the drier side, they have poor hatch and you're not going to see many birds. And, you know, prairie chickens and sharp tails, their escape mechanism is they see you coming and flush before you get to them. They flush before you ever get to them. Yeah. So they like, you know, about knee high grass. They just stick their head up when they see you coming, gone. So you want a good hatch here because the young ones aren't that bright <laughs> and you can get closer to them. <laughs> if you have a bad hatch here, you're hunting adults and good luck getting close to them. Um, but that's kind of what you want to look for. So you want to call the state agency, it was a good hatch here. Matter of fact, were the last two years good hatch years? Because if they were, that second year is when you want to go hunt. There's probably going to be a lot of birds around. Nice. And then you just need to find the pastures that haven't been grazed completely down to a golf course. You know, they're going to like, like I said, probably, you know, mid shin to shin height. Yeah. You can find pastures like that, then you can have some success. <laughs> be prepared to walk, though. The landscape all looks the same and they're out there somewhere. <laughs> I've heard you got to put some miles in when you chase them. Yeah, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't too bad. My dad is 75 now. And so we hunted probably four hours straight opening morning, probably a little more than that. Well, five hours just after lunch. I mean, our dogs were pretty much beat. You know, it's that season opens around September 12th. So it's early, can be very warm. Yep. yep. I'll warn you about that. Bring water for your dogs. Um, you know, but we had our limit. So I think a lot of people did. And then the next day, I think we had our limit again by noon or a little after. So nice. Huh. And that's right. That grass probably isn't super thick, is it? No, it's a lot easier walking than what we're, you know, we're used to banging through natives that are as tall as our shoulders here, you know, yeah, yeah. constantly got to lift your feet and all the grass out there is, you know, not any higher than your knees. So nice. it's a lot easier walking, you know, there's, there's some porcupines. You could run into a rattlesnake. Of course, you got some prickly pear there. So, you know, some things that you're not going to run into back here, but, you know, your dogs figure out what prickly pear is after they hit it a couple times. <laughs> Forget what a porcupine is, too, after they hit that. It's doing its thing, but, you know, yeah. porcupines are probably the worst thing. We had a dog get into, you know, it was one of them deals where hunting some snowberry, which is about knee high and we had just gotten up a big group of sharp tails, shot some birds, dogs went on point again. My father-in-law, short hair, went on point, you know, we released it. She dove in there and it was a porcupine. She was just Ugh. full face, full chest. Um, couldn't get close to her to try to pull them ourselves. So we had to take her up to Hettinger, North Dakota, and he actually had to knock her out, and, you know, and take out the 80 quills and- <laughs> Jeepers. It was, wow. that was a tough day that day, but. Is that your only run in with porcupine? 
Yeah, you, it's not uncommon out there. It's funny, you know, because you think about porcupines in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and the timber, and you're standing out there in the grassland, the nearest trees three miles away, and you run into a porcupine. I mean, Jeez. What about rattlesnakes? How many of those have you seen? Rattlesnakes usually, you know, I, I think I've probably been out there maybe a dozen times or so, a dozen different years, I guess. Um, and we run into rattlesnake once. Um, maybe twice. So run into more porcupines than we have rattlesnakes. Your dogs go after a rattlesnake? No, it depends on your dog. I mean, what's your dog do here when it runs into a big snake? You know, if they if they probably chase them here, they probably will out there. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I've never I ran into one here. <laughs> My dog's never seen one. <laughs> yeah, I see me. I mean, here, you know, October into November, when you know most of your snakes are already hibernated. You know, but you're out there in September, you can have 80, 90 degree weather, and so. You know, they're probably yeah. going in that mode at that time, even out there, but because there's probably been some cool nights, but you know, you just never know. And so, <laughs> so we'll be heading out when, uh, like the end of November. So they'll probably be put away for the winter, hopefully. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you're out there when it's that cold, I mean, yeah, right. Your snakes are going to drop off quite a bit by the time you get into October and stuff. Yeah. But your prairie grouse hunting gets tougher because um, they've been educated by then. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Yeah, and we're not educated, so that's a bad mix. <laughs> that is a bad mix. Yeah, there's not really any sneaking up on grouse. I mean, you know, if I yeah. could show you guys a picture, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, you can see for 10 miles. <laughs> it's not yeah, like that's crazy. Sneak up on them. Jeez. Well, we'll uh, we'll let you know how it goes this year, Todd, if we are getting one. <laughs> I'll, send you, I'll send you a picture. Yeah. Yeah, they were dry going into this fall. When I talked to the land managers out at Grand River, it was um, it been a really good nesting. They had moisture up and through June. So he's like, you know, I think they did really good nesting. He's like, now we haven't had rain since and it's drying down, but he's like, I think the production was good. So it really depends on what they have this winter and next spring. I mean, I think next year could be a really good year, but really depends on what happens between now and next June. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, Todd, we just want to thank you for your time tonight. This was so informative that uh, I'm just shocked by everything that goes on and I had no idea. And I think a lot of our listeners probably will, will, will love listening to this too. Tyler, I don't, 